I know everybody's looking at the clock going, oh, he's just going to start talking now. Um, <laughs> for, yeah, right? Right? Um, no, I couldn't let uh, a Sunday and Christmas go by without me contributing a, a few thoughts, and uh, especially an important uh, year like this. Um, first off, though, I want to thank uh, Chris for his, his hard work in, in getting the Christmas choir together. So let's just thank Chris for that. Appreciate that. And then the, the choir and the rest of the tech and media team that, I, I don't know how long you guys have been practicing, but uh, it was before we even, we even came to interview, I think. So probably, I think you started at Easter time or something. So um, thanks for all your effort. All you did, I know, it was a lot of coordinating, um, especially during this weird um, time where we're not supposed to be gathered together to be working on stuff. So thank you. Appreciate that um, in making Christmas special this year. Uh, appreciate that. Um, a few a few things as I jump in. Usually I start my message with like some sort of creative hook trying to draw you in and stuff. Like we cut that out this week. So I'm just going <clears> to <throat> announce a few things. Just a reminder, um, Christmas Eve, we have a Christmas Eve service at 6 p.m. I distributed cards that said 6.30. Um, don't, don't listen to me. Um, on the card, listen to me now. Um, 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve. I'm not even going to say what day it is because I'll probably mess up that. So just Christmas Eve is our Christmas Eve service. So hope to see you online or, or here in person. It's going to be a, um, a little less production value and a little bit more of an intimate setting. I hope you can join us. Um, next Sunday also, um, we're going to wrap up the year with a service of lament um, during our worship gathering. Um, it'll be a little bit different, but it'll just be a, a time to pause, look back, reflect, Name before our God the things that we have lost in this year and turn our hope once again to the God who, who brings redemption, reconciliation, restoration that brings life. So um, just be looking forward to that. Um, the scripture I want to share with you this morning, uh, it's going to be familiar. Um, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 should be on the screens if you're following along. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Time to go. <laughs> um, all right, so the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. It's the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Um, we've just read a scripture about Mary, uh, 
in a Protestant church service. So it must be Christmas time. It's the only time of the year we talk about Mary in the, <laughs> in the church. Um, but for many Protestant Christians, we see how the, the Catholic church kind of venerates. If you grew up Catholic, you, you probably noticed that they gave more attention to Mary than we typically do. Um, but sometimes the pendulum can swing too far the other way. Sometimes we can get a little bit too nervous about, you know, maybe we're being a little too Catholic or something like that. And the pendulum can swing too far the other way because Mary's story is important. Uh, it's, it has a lot it can teach us. It can challenge us. It can inspire us. And if we're willing to pay attention to it, we can learn a lot from Mary's story. Um, Mary is told that she is pregnant and her child will rule from the throne of David and his kingdom will never end. This is the, the message that the angel brings to Mary and it troubles her, it says. It says that his kingdom will never end. Her child will rule from the throne. Now in the scriptures, it's important to know that the word rule, the word reign, and the word kingdom are, are, are all the same word in the language that the Bible was written in. And so when you think kingdom of God, don't think of a geographic place. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is coming, don't think of a kingdom with walls and a castle like floating through the sky and going to land at a specific spot. But the kingdom of God is the reign of God, the rule of God, the, the authority of God in the, the world. And so, for example, when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, he literally means it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be under the authority of King Jesus, who says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Right? This isn't about God saying no to rich people getting into heaven. This is about a rich man saying no to God about falling under his authority, about letting heaven rule in him. But not only is Mary's son going to be the king, I mean, this is a big deal, right? He's going to have a reign and a rule that lasts forever, the throne of David. He's going to be the king. But not only is he going to be the king, he's going to be a son of God, the very son of God. Son here doesn't mean biological son. It doesn't mean that he's got, you know, God the Father's DNA or something like that. It means that her son will carry with him the nature, the likeness, the character of God, the very nature of God. This son will be divine. Sons carry the authority of their fathers. They represent the father. They have the power of their father. And so Mary, who's this poor teenager in this village in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth, is going to have a son who's going to be the very son of God. Imagine the scandal of a king having a child with a poor peasant girl. Think of the scandal because of the, the, the differences in nobility and class and, and, and the difference of bloodlines or status and hierarchy, right? Think of the scandal if the powerful king had a child with a peasant girl from a nowhere village. This is part of the Christmas scandal, except instead of it being any old king, it's God himself that's going to bear a child with this poor peasant teenager. And as terrifying, as disorienting as this is for Mary, she understands that this announcement is good news for her people. God will be present with God's people in the birth of her son, Emmanuel, God with us. 
So what did the people of Israel think about God's coming to be with them, to dwell with them? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Hey, God's going to show up. There is two defining events in the history of the people of Israel. I've said it before. I'll probably say it again. Two defining events in the history of the people of Israel, Exodus and Exile. Um, In the Exodus, God leads his people through the wilderness using cloud and fire, right? God is with them. He guides them. After giving the law on Mount Sinai, God moves his presence with the people of God via the Ark of the Covenant, right? They have this Ark that they carry, and, and God's presence dwells with that Ark. And wherever the Ark goes, God goes with them. And when they, when they take the Ark with them, things happen well. Things, battles go in their favor. Situations work out for them whenever this presence of God moves with them. But when they lose the Ark, when they, when they take it into a, a situation and they lose it, Things go poorly for them. So when God is with them, they, they're winners. When God is not with them, all types of tragedy strikes. They weren't able to carry out the missions they were called to do. They became powerless when God was not with them. Fast forward a little bit, and the temple was built. And this was a permanent dwelling place. So God, God had a permanent house amongst his people. God could dwell there amongst them in, the, in their midst. And God was present in this innermost part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. So the, the, the temple was, was laid up in this kind of concentric um, walls, rings. As you got closer to the middle, closer to God's presence, the, the more important you had to be, the more righteous you had to be in order to get in. And their entire religious system, their entire system of worship was focused on the presence of God being in the center. And to move from one to the next, you had to... Um, meet certain qualifications to, to worship at that particular location to the point that the very holy of holies where, where God was present, only the, the most holy priest could go in there, and that was only one day a year. This entire system was built around proximity of God to the people of God. There are many scriptures in the Old Testament about God removing people from God's presence. He sends them away. He sends them out of their sight. He, he sends them apart from him. Right? And this was, this was punishment. This was condemnation. This was judgment. To be sent apart away from God. So God's presence was symbolized or, or represented by this smoke that filled the Holy of Holies. There's several scriptures that talk about this, this glory that filled the temple. And it was always this smoke and light and and it filled this holy of holy space in the temple. God's presence is connected with the word glory, especially in the Old Testament. When you read the word glory, think about God's presence. But in Ezekiel, the scripture doesn't tell of God sending a person away from his presence. He doesn't tell a story about, we're going to send those people away because they were bad. Um, there's a different story in Ezekiel. Do we have that scripture? I didn't know if I totally botched the slides as well this morning. Thought we had some troubles a minute ago. Um, but the scripture from Ezekiel, there it is. Listen to what it says happens here. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. So it left the temple. The glory of the Lord departed. This is a vision that Ezekiel has, and he sees God's presence leaving the temple. God was no longer present with his people. And if you, if you turn the page from Ezekiel chapter 10 
over to Ezekiel chapter 11, would you be surprised to find out that the next thing that's talked about is the destruction of Jerusalem? Judgment, condemnation, the presence of God departs from his people and ruin and destruction is sure to follow. When God is not present, when God is not with his people, they are scattered, they are defeated. Yet in the same vision in Ezekiel, that we have this vision of God's presence leaving the temple, the same vision of God's people being conquered and exiled, the same vision of all this destruction that's coming, in that same vision, God promises to gather back to himself the people of God. God will be present with them again, and when that happens, they will have their land, they will be God's people again, they will have their identity, they will be restored, redeemed, reconciled. But more importantly, in this vision, God will purify them. God will put a pure heart and a pure spirit into these people. This is the scripture where we get the, get the phrase where God says, they will be my people and I will be their God. This is a promise. So in this vision, God's presence has left his people, but he calls out to them and says, I will gather you back and you will be my people again and I will purify you. I will make you holy once again. And after the exile ends and the people of God are able to return back to Israel, they struggle. There's division there's conflict. The people of God are vulnerable. They're weak. Things don't quite go back the way that they'd hoped they would. There's some people that still cling to the promises of God, that, that they put their hope in God's salvation. They put their hope in God's deliverance. Yet there are others that look around, assess the situation, say, this isn't quite what we'd hoped for. And so they put their trust in the powers of this world. At the time that Mary hears this news, at the time that the angels appear to Mary, there's this massive temple in Jerusalem. It's been rebuilt by a man named Herod. He's King Herod the Great, no less, so kind of an important sounding guy. And King Herod is known for his amazing building projects, right? So some of his, his building projects still stand today. And they're massive and they're impressive. I had an opportunity in the year 2000 to go to Israel. And I visited some of the sites that King Herod had built. And, and while he was king, there was a great deal of renewal and growth under King Herod. It looked like the promise was being fulfilled. People were able to return to Israel and, and it was being rebuilt and restored. And the temple was this beautiful, massive structure. Yet Herod's power did not come from God's presence there. Herod's power came from Rome. Now things get messy here and we're not going to go into all the details today, um, but I think it can best be summarized by the story of what happens when Jesus arrives at the temple to start the Passion Week, week before Easter. Jesus shows up and he visits the temple and if you think that, that Jesus, the Son of God, should have an opinion of the temple, you would think that it would be this great wonderful opinion of the temple. But he doesn't. He shows up to the temple and he, he tips over the tables and he disrupts the money changers and he disrupts the entire operation of this temple. In less than a week, he, he's killed. But he shows up to this temple and says, this is supposed to be the house of God, but it's not. You've made it a den of robbers. You've turned it into something that God did not intend it to be. This is not God's presence here. 
the temple had become a religious system co-opted by powerful rulers that wanted to ensure they kept their power. The temple and those who ran it were partners with Herod and with the Romans who used the temple to keep people in line. The religious leaders desired the power of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire desired the control over the people that the, the temple could offer them, that the religious leaders could provide. And so there was this perfect match of corruption between corrupt religious leaders and political leaders seeking power. And throughout history, one thing has remained true. Nothing good comes when power-hungry religious leaders team up with powerful and ambitious governments. It doesn't end well. Right? So Jesus shows up, says that the temple is a den of robbers. Again, he's quoting from Jeremiah 7. And then he performs some civil unrest. Jesus declared in his words and his actions that this is not where God is present. This is not the house. This is not the dwelling place of God. It may look like at the temple, this fantastic, glorious, massive, beautiful structure may look like the house of God. But God does not dwell there. So despite the temple being rebuilt along with all the other religious activities that took place there, it was a busy place. It was, had a lot happening, religious ceremonies and people that were employed there and all types of religious activities going on in this temple Despite all of that, the people of God were still longing and hoping for God's presence to return. They were still longing for God to be with them, to fulfill the promises, to teach them how to live as God's people. They were hoping and longing for God to bring transformation by purifying their hearts and their souls. And so when Gabriel speaks to Mary, this is what he's saying is going to happen. God is returning to Israel. He's coming back. He's going to dwell amongst you. He's going to live with his people. And all these promises are going to be fulfilled. Except he's not coming back to the temple. He's not moving into a building made of stone or of wood. He's moving in to your son. To your child. He's not going to be a a cloud of smoke in, in a special room in a temple. He's showing up in this baby. Jesus is the new temple. The new dwelling place of God amongst his people. And this is great news because God's presence means life. It means justice. And not justice as in, you know, we punish the wrongdoer. But justice as in all things that are wrong being made right. Restoration, redemption. God restores that which has been taken. God's presence meant that they could truly be God's people again. And so over the long history of Israel... The people of God didn't always understand their relationship with God real well. It kind of changed as their environments changed, their situations changed. But as they continued to be faithful, as God continued to be faithful to his people, to care for them, to provide for them, to forgive them, to protect them, they started to begin to understand that God loved them. They began to see that their relationship with this God wasn't a transactional one. Well, if you do this, then I'll do that. And if you do that, then I'll do this. They began to understand that God's relationship to them wasn't based on transactions. It wasn't built on appeasing of a faraway deity, right? Their God truly loved them. And by the time of Jesus, they began to conclude that not only did their God love them, But God was love. To know God was to know love. 
And this was a transforming love, a self-sacrificing love, a, a compassionate love. So by the time of Jesus, the people of Israel knew that they needed God's presence with them. And without God showing up, they were lost. They were destined for destruction. If God's presence didn't dwell amongst them, they were never going to become the people that they were supposed to be. If they were going to be healed, it was God that would have to show up to heal them. If they were going to be reconciled, it was God that was going to have to show up and do the reconciling. If they were going to live according to the way that leads to life, God would have to show up and lead them, teach them, and transform them. And they believed all these things were going to happen because the God who promised to dwell with his people loved his people. And so they celebrated Emmanuel. God is with us. It was the answer to generations of prayer. God had returned to live and dwell amongst them. It was worth celebrating. But friends, what do you think our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates think about God showing up? Especially those who haven't been around the church, who haven't grown up in Christian settings or don't know what we know if you've been a lifelong Christian. What do you think they show, think about God showing up? Is it a good thing? Would they celebrate if God showed up today? Is God showing up, in their opinion, the only way to find life, peace, mercy, justice, hope, joy, or love? Or are there other options? Maybe there's better options to find those things. Do they know the God of all creation? Do they know that the King of Kings loves them? I'm afraid that for far too many people, God showing up is viewed as the worst thing that could happen right now. If they saw God coming towards them, would they run towards him and embrace God, or would they run the other way? <clears throat> the sad truth is that far too many people aren't familiar with a God who loves them, a God who wants to heal their wounds, to care and provide for them, to purify their hearts, to purify their souls, to forgive their sins. They don't know a God that wants to redeem them, to recover them for the life that they're intended to have. They don't know about a God that acts from a motivation of love for them. They don't know about that when God comes and God becomes flesh and dwells amongst them, that, that this is a blessing, it is salvation, it is good news, it is life without limits. For far too many people, God's coming means condemnation. It means punishment, it means wrath, it means shame, it means guilt, and they... They don't hope for God to come to be present with them the way that Israel did. They don't hope the way that Mary did. They actually hope God stays far away as they try to stay far away from God. And this heartbreaking view of God exists because people don't know the God of love revealed through Jesus Christ. They haven't heard about or met the God who loved them so much that he sent God's only son. They don't know about a God who keeps his promises even when people fail to keep their end of the deal. They don't know about a God that offers them new life. 
And what's equally tragic and equally heartbreaking to me is that there are many Christians who don't know that God either. Many Christians today were introduced to an angry and an absent God. And you better keep doing the right things. You better keep doing the right things and looking the right way. Otherwise, when this angry, absent God finally decides to show up, he's going to take out his anger on you. You better clean yourself up because if God shows up and you aren't looking your best, if, you, if God shows up and you aren't good enough, <clears throat> doing enough, God is not going to be happy with you. And you won't like what he does. And I cannot explain how much it grieves this pastor's heart that we put all this time, all this energy, all this commitment into our faith, and yet we don't grasp the simple yet life-changing truth that God loves us. We spend hours and hours in study, in church, in religious activities, part of religious organizations, and despite all of that, many of us miss the greatest and most meaningful reality that Christmas announces to us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Christ's coming reveals to us, declares to us, comforts us with the truth that God loves us. The truth is that the world doesn't know that when God shows up in Jesus, they can experience hope, joy, peace, and love. Because there are many Christians who don't know that when God shows up in Jesus, we can experience hope, peace, joy, and love of God. The world will only know the love of God if we share it with them. And we can only share God's love if we know God's love ourselves. So let's start at the beginning. We can put up the slide. Just keep, is there another slide? I hope there is. There. I went all creative and got artsy with the, the layout. But let's start with the beginning. God loves you. God loves us. God loves them. God loves. God is love. The reason why God has entered into human history, the reason why God has called and gathered a people, sent his son, poured out his spirit, and called us his own is because he loves us. And when Jesus came to be with us on Christmas, he brings with him the love of God for us to experience. So we may know the love of God. So this year, as we celebrate the arrival of Jesus into the world, let us celebrate the God who Jesus reveals. Let us celebrate the things of God that are present here with him. This Advent, we have spent a week looking at hope. We've spent a week looking at peace. We've spent a week looking at joy and now love. May we share the, the news of this God with those who have not heard. May we share the presence of this God who cares for all of his creation with those who have not experienced it. Like Mary, like the people of Israel, they longed and hoped for God to be present with them. May we, with open arms, welcome a God who is love into our lives. May we welcome love as we welcome God's arrival. I'm going to pray um, to close our time together and then we'll dismiss um, uh, to go and to, to be the love of God made real in the world, made flesh in the world, um, to share the good news that God loves us.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a season <clears throat> that comes every year whether we're ready or not. A season that, that reminds us of your deep, unfailing love for your creation. Father, we have the tendencies to get it twisted. We have the tendencies to, to want to have to earn it. We have the tendency to use um, ideas about what it takes to, to be loved by you and what it takes to, be, to upset you. Father, we, we have a tendency to kind of make our own rules. If we're, if we're good enough, if we do enough, then maybe this God will love us. But you start out every, every year with, with Christmas by announcing your unconditional love for your creation. And you love us enough not just to, to show up and say, I love you regardless, but you love us enough not to leave us in despair, not to leave us in our sinful, broken condition, but to call us, to transform us, to invite us and teach us the ways of life. Father, it grieves my heart to know that there's people out there that do not know that you love them. There's people right now that think you despise them, you hate them, you desire the worst for them. Father, Christmas is the announcement of your love. That while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to teach us the ways of life. And he loved us enough that he died for us. Father, may we be your church shaped by love. Father, send us out from this place, celebrating the good news, helping others to find the hope, helping others to see the joy and excitement and the announcement that God is here. Your presence didn't show up in, in a temple, in a building that only a limited few could ever go into, but no, you're... Your presence showed up in flesh and blood in a person of the name of Jesus. For all the world to know. Father, we thank you. And we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's been good to be with you today. Uh, again, thank you for the, the Christmas choir. That was fantastic. I'm going to go back and probably watch it again on live stream. Because I know I missed some stuff um, the first time around. Um, but uh, hope to see you either online or here on Christmas Eve. And uh, have a blessed week. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas.